Hi, it's Alex. Thanks for downloading the Youth and Education podcast, and welcome to the Life Pedagogic. In this series of podcast episodes, we'll be interviewing high-profile guests about their life and work within the youth and education sectors. These podcasts will be exploratory, open discussions, inviting you into the speaker's worlds and encouraging challenging thinking. We hope you enjoy listening. Black, Asian and minority ethnic families typically place enormous value on education. For many, especially first-generation immigrants, doing well at school is seen as a gateway to securing a place at university, a good job and material prosperity. However, despite this deep respect for education, black, Asian and minority ethnic individuals are much less likely than their white peers to work as teachers. They're even less likely to work as school leaders and head teachers. Martha Rollins OBE is someone who bucks that trend. The first black head teacher in Newham, she came to teaching later on in her life than many. Working in one of the most diverse and impoverished parts of the country, she has used her own experiences as an immigrant child to guide her practice. In 2009, the Evening Standard named her one of the 100 most influential people in London, and in 2011, she was featured in the Metro's Top 50 Black Heroes. She joins us today to talk us through her life, career, and the challenges that black teachers continue to face in the profession. Marva Rollins, welcome to your Life Pedagogic. Thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure to be here this morning. Marva Rollins, you spent your career teaching and leading in Newham and Enfield, some of the most ethnically diverse parts of the country. Your school's intake reflected that diversity, with many pupils being first-generation immigrants themselves. With all of this in mind, do you agree with Chair of the Social Mobility Commission, Catherine Burblesing, when she recently said that schools should teach their ethnic minority immigrant pupils to sing the national anthem to teach them a sense of belonging? Well, I think... um... With respect to Catherine, if it was as easy as that, we wouldn't be facing the challenges we're facing in education. And there's this assumption that white children know they belong because they know the national anthem. And most white children don't know the words to the national anthem. And I I don't see how it plays a part in belonging. Belonging, in my view, is about acceptance and recognition that we all bring something to the table, that we all bring something important from our cultures to to what's happening in Britain today, and that we are not less than or more than. Belonging means that when I walk into a room, someone isn't going to say, oh, it's a black head teacher, yeah, because that's what we still get. And sadly, I think sometimes I walk into a room, I thought, oh, there are other people like me here. When, in fact, that should be the norm. So it's about really... In belowing says I am okay, I am enough, I am who I am, and I have my worth, and I ask you to recognize and respect that. So no, I don't agree with Catherine. <laughs> Mother Rollins, I now want us to take a deep dive into the annals of your memory. What's your very first memory of being in a school? Gosh, I had I have to mm, I have to think about that. My first memory, I mean, I was born in Barbados, yeah, and I spent the first twelve years of my life there. So I I would have gone to school about the age of four, because that's 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 the time that we would have started school. And my images in my head is there's this big open plan room with two classes down the middle down the sides and then two classes off the other two sides and the head teacher sitting at her desk looking very stern and scary. I did not like school. I was desperate to get away from school um, and would try to run out 
I know I can actually remember trying to run out, but um, there were ways to stop me running out. So those were my early days. I just didn't see why anyone would put their little child into that place <laughs> and leave them there. I don't know why my mum would want to do that to me. But I got used to that. So so my early childhood was one of not liking school. And yet I liked to play with dolls. And I would play with make my own little dolls and I would teach them in the backyard of my parents, my grandparents' house. And I would teach them. I made them from clay, they were crumbled, and I made some more and I'd be teaching them. So clearly, even though I didn't particularly like school, I liked playing teacher. So maybe I, they should have let me teach from the age of four rather than put me to sit with the other children. And I said, obviously, I, I did the equivalent of 11 plus in Barbados. We called it common entry, I think. But I came here at 12. But my childhood, I think we may have... I'm not sure if this is a place to talk about my childhood and the journey of my people to this country. But my early childhood, I learned, I think I learned because I had to learn. It was in my village, everybody knew everyone's child and they could tell you who came top of, top of the class in any, at any one point. You know, this is, it was this ed, need for education because I I was probably the third generation, fourth generation out of enslavement, but then into the plantation system. We went from one to the plantation system. And my grandparents could read, most certainly. And my uncles and aunts went to school and they did well. So we were on that journey of recovery and becoming who we are. So, yeah, I didn't like school initially. I'm not sure I ever liked school, to be honest. I just... Just went through school um yeah so that's my but yeah it was scary at first really scary um i think it traumatized me to be honest to be put in that building yeah and marvel rollins i understand that you were a barrel child can you tell us more about what that means and how it affected your childhood the term barrel child is quite a new way of describing my generation I describe, I do a lot of training around um, equality and equity and diversity, and I describe my generation as the left-behind children. Because when you see the pictures of those who come, not just who came, not just on the Windrush, but in other, after that, and other, other shapes, you will see that the children are missing. The children, thousands of us were left behind in the Caribbean with our grandparents, auntie, uncles, a whole range of best friends next door, while our parents travel here. Because you know the story that our parents came to help rebuild the country after the devastation of the Second World War. And really, the view was that they would come back to us. It was never an intention for them, us to come here to them. So the barrel is represents the... And it wasn't barrels as we know it in my time with boxes that were sealed again and again and again to keep them safe. It's the things that our parents would send back for us. They send material for school uniforms. They would send clothes, mainly clothes actually. And sometimes coffee and tea or something like that, but not really. It was mainly on a regular basis. And I don't know how regular because that would come to my grandparents. Children were not engaged in those experiences. But on a regular basis, our parents would send, I mean, they sent money every month because they had to help look, they had, they had to look after us, um, help those. Who, but 
but the barrels represent the fact that we were separated from our parents. So I'm not particularly comfortable with the term barrel because I said we were left behind. And that's really, and that also meant that there was a whole level of trauma and anxiety and distress. And what's, that's never been really, it's only recently that the level of trauma has been identified, recognized because it wasn't just that we were separated from our parents. It was the fact that our uncles left, our aunties left, the person sitting next to us at school left after a while. There was this constant move, leaving, not movement, leaving of people who you knew as your uncle, your auntie. And as a child, no one said to us, well, instead of going to England, but we're, we're on earth with England if you're seven, eight, nine, ten, or America or Canada. They went several places. So for me, that represents trauma. That represents deep fear of not knowing. And it represents the fact that when we then had to reconnect with our parents here, that there was a struggle for some, some, of, us, some of us as young people. My parents were fine, but I didn't know them. My dad had left seven years before and my mum had left five years before, but we really didn't know them. And they had to reconnect with us and we had to... We, so the whole notion of the barrel um, children is the breaking of bonds and then the reuniting and trying to manage and build and to rebond. And that's a big ask. That's, that was a big challenge. And we went, and of course we went to school here, and that was just another trauma, another nightmare for many of us, yeah, because so many of us were put into the bottom stream, or some were sent off to special school. You know that long story. So Barrow represents for me trauma and fear. And Mara Rollins, I want to pick up on that point. Um, eventually, you did come to the UK to join your parents. Can you tell us more about your your early experiences of going to school here? The, the teachers, I went straight to secondary school because I was 12. The teachers, and this is my view, and it's not been researched, were not expecting us. I was the second black child in my school, but fortunately I happened to know the first black child in the school because she came from my village as well. Because um, people from islands sort of gathered together in certain parts of the country. So I went to a school where... Nobody knew that black children could learn. Nobody knew that there was an educational system in the Caribbean. And the back and the fallout from that is that therefore many of us started in the bottom stream. Or as I said, if you read Bernard Cord's account, how many of us were put in special schools. But that was based on the assumption that we just did not have the capacity to learn. I think for children like me, the teachers were surprised when I knew the answers to some of the questions. First of all, I couldn't understand what they were saying and they couldn't understand me, divided by the same language because, you know, we have an English um, um, dialect, yeah. So it took a while to settle and and there there was two worlds. Children would speak to us in school, but not speak to us on the street. So we had to deal with that as well. And because I didn't understand racism at that point, racism is a term that came much later into my life. We were just children. 
And I didn't really appreciate that being black made me different. I'm not even sure I knew I was black because in Barbados, 97% of the people were black um, at that time. So, so yeah, but you know what? You just get on with it, don't you? And no one said, how did you feel today at school? No one, they were, those, those, I mean, ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences, was not on the agenda. And yet, for many of us, it was our agenda. Yeah, but we didn't know. We just didn't know. How we survived that is a tribute to humankind, really. And when you were getting on with it, uh, eventually, Marble Rollins, what kind of student were you? And thinking about your early childhood experiences with your dolls, um, did you know that you wanted to become a teacher when you were that age? I think, because one of my aunts became a teacher, I think back in Barbados, I wanted to be a teacher, even though I hated schools. That was a bit of a oxymoron thing, isn't it? But coming here, it was not on the radar. It just was not on the radar. We went to secondary modern girls' school and secondary modern education in the 60s, and sadly in some places still now, was education for white working class children. And the aspirations for those white working class children were that they, the girls, they could end up in the typing pool in the, in the, in the city or they're going to work in the cafes and the, the other industries. So that was a peak of expectation. So the idea that anyone can leave my secondary modern school and go on to be a teacher was not on the agenda for anyone. So it's not so much that it was about black students. It was about expectations of students in, in this country who did not get through the grammar school system. So, so any idea that I had about being a teacher would have been wiped out of, of existence. So I was a good student. I was quiet. I'm still quiet, by the way. Um, I just, people make me not so quiet. Um, um, but I was good. I worked, I'm, I was used to studying. I was used to doing as I'm told, you know. I mean, some some of the black students were very distressed by the whole changes and some were less calm than me. I went inwards, some went outwards. Yeah, that's how I described the difference in my behaviour. Um, so, yeah, so I got through school. I kind of got through early life anyway. I got through school. But I... Um, I trained to be something, it's called a contometer operator. They don't exist. That was pre-computer days, by the way, but they were the highlights of the accounts departments. Those were the, those were the jobs to get if you weren't an accountant in the accounts department. And I trained to be a contometer operator. You can look it up and you see lots of the machines and then you can smile. I trained to be a contometer operator and that's what I did um, for the early part of my career, my life, yeah. And Mar Rollins, can you tell us more about your journey from contometer operator to eventually um, training to be a teacher? Okay, I was a contometer operator. Then I had three children when I was in my twenties, so I stayed at home. And I, I sit, and I actually I did sewing. I didn't know how to sew. I didn't know how to do any of these things. But I met a lady on the street, and she talked. She said she was sewing from home. And she would show me. So she came and she helped me. And my mom hired this huge machine. I ran the needle through my finger many times. But that allowed me to be able to work from home, earn a living, 
and also to look after my three boys because two of them had health issues and it meant that hospital appointments, I could work around sewing. So I did that. What triggered me to think again about teaching is when we began to set up black groups. There were black groups in the 60s, yeah? They were very, they were very political type black groups. But in Newham, we had, we set up women, um, black, no, um, but East London Black Women Organization. And in that group were at least two people who were teachers and a couple of social workers, but most of them were like me, young mums. And there was an advert in what probably was a Caribbean time at the time talking about uh, returning to study programs for black students, for black people. Someone had woken up to realise that we had been disadvantaged just by being here. And so I did a year study of return to study. I did a year's program. And then I did a four-year beard honours. And I started teaching at the age of 36. So I, I started, I went to the return to study course at 31, four years then after that. And I started teaching at the age of 36. But in that time, I'd been in lots of community groups because I became very active. I was in this group, that group. We were changing the world, yeah? I think having been at home for those years, sewing with the kids, I was like free. I was I was literally, any group that was going, I joined the group. And then I ended up either being chair, treasurer, or secretary of those groups. It was very tiring after a while. But those taught me skills that I could then transfer to education. Mother Rollins, uh, one of our last guests on this podcast was Professor Gus John, the racial justice campaigner. And he talked to us about how even in the, the latter half of the 20th century, lots of initial teacher training itself was loaded with racial racial prejudice. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about whether that was your experience? And indeed, what was your experience of teacher training coming into it as presumably one of the very few black teachers at the time? I would have been one of the few black teachers. And it's, 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 when we talk about institutional racism or any other form of discrimination, we seem to take the people out of it, yeah? It's an institution. Institutions are made up of people. The British educational system were made up of people, some of whom were covert or overt racist, yeah? The system itself, if you're gonna the people who led the system had no regard for us as black teachers. They didn't, I mean, I think they probably were surprised to see any of us become black teachers. So I was sitting, I remember a couple of times I lost it, by the way, in my only twice in my time in schools. And in the first school, it's when I sat there and I heard the most awful language about black people, Asian people in the staff room. And I was alone in that staff room. And I think my colleagues saw me as a teacher, but somehow didn't see that I was a black teacher. I don't know what that was about. And then one day I had just had enough and I spoke up. And they challenged me and I got louder and louder. And I remember the deputy head coming into the staff room and very gently taking me out of the staff room. But we all face racism. But what we had, a lot of us, was like groups like Elbow, Sickle Cell Society. We had places to come back to that reaffirmed who we are or were. 
And as a deputy head, I, I had this a similar challenge. Often the racism wasn't directly at me. It was a racist language that was used in my presence with this lack of awareness that it might be impacting on me. And it's the same in schools. When something happens in school, I don't think teachers are fully aware of how it's impacting on those black children in their schools. So is education institutionally racist? Yes. Um, but we keep fighting. We keep challenging um, the number of policies and procedures in FER more recently. I get a bit tired of that stuff because it's just repeating what other policies and, and guidance have said over the years. And there's work to be done. I'm currently doing some training on one of the initial teaching programs on anti-racism because when you look at teacher standards, there is something about treating everyone equally. There's nothing overt from the DFE about having an anti-racist approach to curriculum, to appointments, to anything. There is no bold statement about equality, equity, and diversity. Yeah, we talk about those terminologies, but there is really no clear, this is what we expect to see coming out of the DFE. So Gus is right. I've known him for a long time. We've been on the campaign trail together for, well, the challenging trail together for a long time. And he's right. There is there is still work to be done. And it's incredible that after 60 plus years of the majority of us being in this country, that there's still so much work to be done. And we've talked about how there was racism that you experienced from colleagues and there was a generally a kind of uh, a lack of awareness and an ignorance among many of your um, uh, peers in the uh, teaching profession. What was the reaction like from pupils to having a black teacher, given that for many of them it would be a very, a very novel experience? Do you know, as a class teacher, because the areas I worked in were always very mixed, mixed culturally mixed. So I am not sure. I like to think I had an impact on all the children, but it really wasn't. No one seemed surprised at the time. The surprise would more come if you go to a conference or if you're in a setting with other teachers. But from the children, in my second school, we had children from 54 countries. Some of the parents of those children would, particularly from the Eastern European communities, would be were surprised when they saw that I was a head teacher. The black parents welcomed the fact that I was a head teacher. And I think I had the respect of most of the white families, although when I left, there was only 1.5% of white families in the school. But I do know from the programs I run, the challenges that some of the teachers from my community face. And I know the challenge of getting to middle leadership and staying there, moving from there to senior leadership and staying there. Because when we look at initial teacher training, Quite a lot of black students do apply, potential students do apply. They do apply, but very few get through. And those who get through, very few of them manage to make their way through the system. So right at the, door, at the doorway, there are these, these issues going on that are blocking um, 
the progression. And it's very hard to be the only black person in some schools. It is very, very hard. Um, so you have no soft place to fall. But I like to think that some of that is shifting. Now, the work I do in Haringey, we can literally see the shift in understanding. Oh, yeah. But most of the times when I've challenged racism, I haven't challenged it on my own behalf. I've challenged it on behalf of my people um, in that wider sense of hearing and seeing what, what's happening to them. And I don't know in 2022 where we're going to go from here other than to keep doing what we're doing. And certainly in schools now, some of the schools, there's greater representation if not at senior leadership, there's greater representation in the curriculum. There's greater representation of what is taught in the curriculum, greater diversity. And, you know, not everyone might in the setting might agree with it because you, can, you can't... Martin Luther King says something about hearts and minds. Um, so you don't, we don't have to wait for their hearts and minds to change for the leadership to bring in change. It's when the block is that leadership that we have the challenge. But when I go into, there are many more books now. There are many more books with young black protagonists in them. There are many more books with um, achievement of black people. It's like it's a bit of a novelty. The fact that this achievement goes back hundreds of years seems to have passed some people by. Um, so there, there's there's a shift in some schools, in some areas, but not in most schools, in most areas. There just isn't. And thinking about your journey, Marva Rollins, from class teacher to head teacher, eventually you end up becoming the first black head teacher in Newham. How did how did people react to this in the in the profession around you? I was well known in Newham because we'd had the sickle cell. We set up a branch of the sickle cell society in Newham. We had African Caribbean Alliance. We had some very active groups in Newham, and I was very active on some of the committees that were around. So I was known. What I wasn't known, who I wasn't known to, was the people in the school at which I was appointed. So the first feedback was that Newham needed a black head teacher, and that's why they appointed me. So, yeah, that was my welcome speech. <laughs> so the first year of teach headship was a nightmare. Um, but I was given a very strong mentor by Newham, by Newham. They gave me a very powerful head teacher, a very strong mentor. And, she, and we still meet today, all these years later, we meet twice a year today. But facing that, and, and when I became a head, it was a time of real rapid change in education as well. For the first time, schools had their own budgets, and that was my first year. For the first time, we had a national curriculum. It had been in about five years that most people in my school hadn't opened the packages. We had a national curriculum. We had Ofsted started around the same time. So there were lots of changes. There was, there was, if you like, more expectations of teachers than ever in the, in, in the history of education. And I was I had gone into school and it was like my fault, the changes are happening. <laughs> it was my fault, but it was my responsibility. Um, you know, when you see a, going to school and you see a, a line of children waiting to get their work mark, yeah, that's like 20 minutes in a queue. You had, I tried to stop things like that. I tried to insist that the curriculum was relevant and 
sequential and all those things that you want and that we push the children. So I had a lot of back, um, pushback. But my mentor kept me going. I think if it wasn't for her, I'm not sure that I, obviously I couldn't give up. I'm a black woman, I'm a strong black woman and I'm a head teacher and therefore my community was looking at me with deep respect. So there is absolutely nowhere I could have stepped away. And fortunately, let me give my colleagues that knew him, they knew in that, that time, they were there to support me because they could see what was happening. So, um, and then after that, it just got better. And thinking about um, your career in, in Newham and, and, and then in Edmonton, how did you, over the course of your time um, in school, see your school's intake change? Um, you know, we know that there are like, you know, very interesting patterns of migration around that time in London. Um, how did you see your school's intake change and how did you respond uh, as a... When I was um, a class teacher in Newham, I did, I think I taught a black child or white child in my second or third school. My first school were all um, from different Asian communities. And my second school was also mainly from different Asian communities and the uh, odd white child and the uh, odd black child. I really thought I taught a significant number of black children afterwards when I became a head because I shifted just in a different part of Newham slightly. Um, so it was, it was m- more mixed. When I went to my school in Edmonton, a third of the students were white, about 20% were Turkish, and eventually, and then we had a Somalian children started to arrive, so we had a significant number of Somali families. But by the time I left that school, we had 56 languages from 54 different countries, and the white community had gone down to 1.5%. I'm 33% 19 years before. So that was a very gradual, well, it wasn't quite gradual because in Enfield at the time, they built Enfield, at Enfield Village, they built a new area and uh, those white families who were on the council waiting list, they moved out to that area. But we got used to, and I, I think when schools are that mixed, you get less issues around race because everyone is so similar yeah i mean the i think um when the when the eastern european children started to arrive that's when tension was a little bit tricky because they didn't know that they can't say something about black people quite randomly but they they came around um so yeah so that's a shift that's a shift in edmonton but edmonton then had lots of homes of multiple occupancy. It really rated very in the top 5% of poor areas, the part of Edmonton my school was in. So what we had to do there is develop a really strong team of teachers who fundamentally believe that all of our children can achieve. And so we were able to push our results up and push them up and push them up and push them up. By the time we had a very settled forward-looking, outward-looking team of teachers. And that's what all schools need. All schools need teachers who believe in the children and not because it's a black boy, a black girl, whatever, that they they don't... Because your ability to learn 
it's not about your cultural group. Your ability to learn is about the opportunities that are presented to you to enable you to learn. Marva Rollins, earlier on, we were discussing uh, recent research from the National Foundation for Educational Research that's found that BAME individuals are massively underrepresented in the teaching profession. However, interestingly, that same research also finds that BAME are proportionately well represented in initial teacher training, but then start to leave the profession from then on. In your experience, what do you think are the reasons for BAME teachers leaving the profession in this way? I do think there's um, there's an underlying current of racism, but I also think that it's about the level of support that might be linked to racism. It's a level of support that teachers need to to stay. All teachers need a certain a high level of support because teaching is really challenging um, to stay in the profession. And if you, if given that all teachers need that high level of support and you are caught up in that, the chances are that you can be very quickly isolated. You don't, I mean, certain areas, you see a school with three, four, five black teachers, secondary schools, maybe a few more. But in some areas, we're talking about one or two black teachers in a school still, um, even in, in Enfield or Haringey, you can still find schools with no black teachers, but with black children. Um, and it's a sense of isolation. It is hard. And if you don't have an infrastructure that says, come, we're going to plan together. Come, I'm going to model some teaching for you. Because initial teacher training does not necessarily give you all the tools you need to be a successful teacher because you are placed in schools to do your teacher training. So it's really depending on the experience. So if you go six weeks block in a school, it depends on the quality of the teacher you're with and what or what he or she is prepared to help you with. Some students get no help and then some new teachers get no help. Um, and then they give up because white teachers give up as well because they think there's a different there's a life out there the life of a teacher is not nine till five or three the life of a teacher is like seven till seven yeah seriously um and is it that we left let's have stamina i don't think it's got anything to do with our stamina it's like where do we go to get this help and if you're not doing well in the classroom is it that you're not doing well because you're a black teacher or you're not doing well because you're a teacher who needs additional support? And therefore, we are more likely to leave the profession. It's like, what the heck? Why am I even doing this? Yeah? And, yet, and yet most of us joined the profession because we knew that we were needed in the profession. Some of us joined the profession because we want to be a teacher. So you... So it's different reasons that we joined the profession. And some of us walk away from the profession because it's too hard, and some walk away because of the level of racism they encounter. Mother Rollins, you've now left Headship, um, but they've not been able to keep you away. You're still working as an educational consultant. And can you tell us a little bit more about the kind of consulting work you focus on? Okay. Um, I, I do different types of consultancy work. First of all, I've always run national... Um, programs for black what we used to call the pit bame and now we don't call bame 
um, teachers, for the institute, for the NEU, for local authorities. So I carry on doing some of that training work that's preparing them for middle and senior leadership, as I said earlier. But then I work directly with schools as the improvement partner. I work on behalf of Haringey Education Partnership and we, are, we have schools. We are their um, school improvement partner and we work, I work alongside schools. And it's about checking, uh, working alongside them on the quality of teaching and learning, the whole issue of um, professional development of teachers and, and black teachers and other teachers. And that's a guiding hand, but that's a partnership, working very closely with them. I also do reviews, equality reviews, looking at exactly what's happening and there's a focus on black and black heritage children in Haringey. What is happening in schools for our children? So those that's a very individualized schools one at a time. I will go into and see what's happening in that school. And that's why I can say I can see the shift in what's happening in, a, in, in, in some schools. But I'm not, I've been into 30 something schools there and about 10 in other boroughs. I do some non-executive work for an organization, non-executive director of education. That's about advising their commercial board on what education could look like for a group of very complex children. And I do lots of talks and things like that. Um, and I, I do the, I do these half an hour slots with young, young black men, men and women, most of them seem to be male actually, young black teachers who are moving their way through the system so they may be middle leaders and they need some guidance. So I build in some half an hour slots for them. Half an hour is really good, yeah, because you discuss an issue, you figure out where they need to go next, they go away and then two weeks later you go back and you, you catch up with them. I quite like those half an hour slots because they don't take any time. Yeah, it doesn't disrupt life too much. And yeah, so I'm still out there. Um, I'm a bit like I miss um, Sir Herman Oosley. I don't know if you read his book Belowing. And he, because he was very high powered, got lots of pushback, lots of encouragement, but lots of pushback in his time at senior roles in this country. And he talked about coming out of the shadows into the public eye and now going back into the shadows. I'm not sure the word he used is shadows, but that's what he said. So that's where I am. I came out of the shadows in the public arena, and now I feel it's time for me to go back into the shadows. Um, and that's why I work with young people, because they have a commitment to passing it on and, and to do what my generation did in our younger days. Marv Rollins, there's two questions we always ask our guests on the Life Pedagogic. Very first one, thinking back on your education career overall, is there anything you really changed your mind about? And if so, what changed your mind? One of the, oh, what did I change my mind about? I don't think I changed my mind about high expectations. I think I changed my mind about how to get those high. I learned how to get those. Wanting to talk about high expectations it's another thing to, to see it in practice. So if I was going to change my mind, it's about this gap between strategic and operational and that somehow we think there is a gap between strategic and operational and that in fact, as a leader, you have to demonstrate 
what you expect of your colleagues. I'm not sure if that's changed, but I learned that along the way. Yeah, I learned that along the way. And that the, the lines can be blurred and it's okay for them to be blurred. But when you go on courses, you've got to be strategic, you've got to be operational, and neither the twain should meet. I'm not quite sure how that works in schools. So if I if that was a change in mind, it's the fact that there is a close relationship between the two. And sometimes as a leader, you just have to do what you have to do. And um and maybe realize that's that's how you get respect as well. Yeah, and that's how you take people with you if they can see you putting your money where your mouth is. But I'm not sure if that's a mind change. So that's me the next. But I learned that along the journey. I didn't know that stuff then. I learned that. Um, I didn't change my mind about black leaders or white leaders. Um, I never thought that all white people were racist. I never thought that all black people were brilliant. So I didn't do any of that old stuff. Um, but the, it's the importance of working with people in a way that gets encourages them to move forward and there's a view in my community that it's not our responsibility to teach white people about racism yeah but I do think we have something to do to ensure that to push people in a direction that says hey this ain't right here let's have a look again so I'm not sure I changed my mind there either but yeah and secondly, what two things would you most like to change about the English educational system? I would like at institutional level to be absolutely clear about anti-racism. It is not clear. It is like, well, the schools can teach a bit. They say, oh, the schools have the freedom to do that. I think the DfE should put down a clear marker about their expectations of schools, as opposed to saying, well, schools have the schools have the capacity to do whatever they think schools have the capacity to do. So I think there needs to be clearer directive. Having said that, a directive doesn't mean it's going to happen, but at least you have something to go back to when you're challenging. So I would change that. I would definitely have that. And I noticed in that initial teacher training, there's no mandatory anti-racism um model some some are doing it and some are not doing it so you start at the beginning before teachers get into school and you lay down the boundaries for 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 those um for racism of any shape or form or any of the protected categories be absolutely clear about what you would expect to see um what else would i change i think i would change the pressure on teachers there's a lot of pressure on teachers. Ofsted, even though most Ofsted um, inspection team are made up of head teachers, etc., teachers are petrified until they realise the team is there to be more. Some teams are very supportive. I was reduce that level of anxiety on teachers. They have to be held to account, but the method of holding teachers to account can be very distressing. Um, those are the two things I'll change, definitely. I'll change the impact that Ofsted has on, because there's this thing in schools, if you're waiting for your inspection, it's every four years, now it's every five years or whatever because of COVID. If you're waiting for your inspection, it goes like this. Monday, you're looking at the clock. Tuesday, you're looking at the clock till one o'clock. Wednesday, you're looking at the clock. Wednesday at one o'clock, you know that Ofsted's not coming that week because they let you know the day before, you have a 90-minute conversation and then they come the next two days. 
and schools can spend three years or more looking at that clock every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So that's the pressure that's on teachers. And in terms of curriculum, is to make sure that everyone feels included in the curriculum. People who look, it's not difficult, you know. And schools are now realising it's not difficult. I think initially it's like, oh, we've got to change everything. Decolonising the curriculum is awful. But that's not it. It is, this is a, Africa and India and other parts of the world have had long histories of high achievement and initiatives, yeah, and, and people have gone there and taken the materials and brought them to other country, but yet said that we're not good enough, that nothing happens in Africa, nothing much happens in India, and that's not true. And it's that absolute shift in the narrative that I would somewhere put it up somewhere so that we can see that the narrative that's still being presented is not... Um, it's not an accurate one. It's about getting that right. So yeah, I would do. I would um shift that narrative. We are working on shifting the narrative, but at a national level, let's work nationally to shift the narrative. Marva Rollins, it's been a pleasure and a privilege having you on the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed discussing your life pedagogic. God, it's been quite wide ranging. So. <laughs> And we we have to be careful with people like me because we are the traumatised group of immigrant children. And sometimes talking about those those times can be, but it's not a therapy. We are not in a therapy session this morning. But if you if you keep reliving them, you can be you can you have to be quite stable to keep reliving those experiences. Yeah. But thank you for inviting me, and I wish you well. We love making this podcast. If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, then there are a few things that you can do. One, subscribe. Hit the subscribe button in iTunes or wherever you are listening. Two, share. Share this episode with someone you know who will find it interesting. Three, review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also, feel free to contact us via the links in the show notes. Thanks a lot.